Hi, you are listening to Mediation Station. And this is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at primus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member. Also visit YouTube channels for both CHHA 1610 AM and Greg Fenton. Listen to podcasts of each radio show by visiting either soundcloud.com and iTunes podcasts under Mediation Station under Arts. Our Twitter account is at Fenton Mediation, so please follow us. Tonight we're talking about professional practice and fatigue, why and how to care with our visitors, Joni Cass and Angela Bradley. How are each of you doing? Excellent. Thanks. I'm good. I'm sitting in this chair, and but I feel different than I usually do. There's a different kind of energy. Because? Because I'm, I'm a visitor and not an elf. Yeah. So right now you're identifying as a visitor. Yeah, but but the elfiness in me is is alive. Yeah. So how are you trying to deal with this conflicting identity perspective right now? I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. I guess we'll see. Well, we'll have to deal with it <laughs> because tonight's program and the show is really <laughs> apropos. Wasn't prepared for an identity crisis. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's having a, you know professional practice concern. This might just drain me. I'll, I'll be oh. I'll be completely um, exposed to compassion fatigue. I know, and then and then I will debrief you, you okay. on the <laughs> trauma of having to deal with um, a visitor partner uh, having an identity crisis during our. During our live uh, radio yeah. show, that live part is really, you know, it's in the moment. Yeah. It's all about taking risks, <laughs> being vulnerable, which is so. It's everything. Yeah. So if people want to call in and contribute to this conversation or further of the content on the topic, you can do so at 416 785 0680. And I'll multitask and I'll answer the phone too, in addition to the boards and then talking and hosting. You know, it takes a lot of yeah. attention for so me to do So maybe call this. during a break. That would make it easier, yeah. Or I can try to manage and ask the two of you to continue to just talking. Ch- just talk. I'll I shut my know. mic and I'll go to them and I'll, we'll, we'll find a way to interject the, the person. 416-785-0680. So how about each of you give us some uh, information about your professional backgrounds? Well, um, yeah, I haven't... I haven't um, figured out my elevator speech lately, so I'll have to kind of do it on the fly. Um, yep. I'm a I'm a social worker. I'm a registered social worker, and um, I'm also a family facilitator and mediator. And right now, I have a number of different things going on. I'm doing uh, debriefing sessions for different organizations in town. Um, debriefing people with with very difficult traumatic uh, work that they do. I'm I also have a practice that a private practice that I'm growing called Mutual Understandings, and it's mostly dealing with older adults and their families going through transitions of aging, like new diagnoses of dementia. 
and um, I'm also leading workshops on compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. And you're also involved with a group. We had a conversation about that prior. And I'm also involved with a group. Do a little shout out quickly. Called Jade Mediation Practice Group, which is uh, a grassroots community that three of my colleagues and I have developed to um, assist new mediators with continuing to develop their skills and to develop a community and a place to meet each other and network and support each other. All right. How about you, Angela? Thanks. I um, am a labor and employment lawyer, have been for about 20 years, started out in the States, and then I've been in the balance the last 13 years here um, in Toronto. So... Um, in 2015, I decided to leave uh, the, the normal practice of law, and I started an independent workplace investigation and mediation practice, and no regrets. I've never looked back. My practice has really become almost all sexual harassment and even down the spectrum into assault, um, and that is exactly... that. So I think a result of the change in legislation in September 2016 with the new definition of sexual harassment in Ontario. I think it is, has also been affected by the media attention to, to sexual harassment um, in the recent months or years. So one of my cases um, was affecting me quite seriously. It it's, was a sexual harassment case and really turned... As I investigated it, I, I found there was a rape. So I saw changes in my personality and being on the board, uh, because I was on the board of Adrio with Joan uh, for the past year, she helped me through that. I'm not typically a very angry person or short-tempered and or, or so emotional. So um, as we talked, it did seem that I was experiencing um compassion fatigue or vicarious trauma or some combination of both. So out of that conversation, I decided to, you know, make something positive of it. And I've been working with Joan and uh, another colleague, uh, Shannon Cunnington, on developing a program um, and a workshop on this. So I'm very excited to be a part of it, and uh, Joan is certainly taking a lead, being a real leader in this area. So, Hugh. Are you affected by what she just said? Yeah, I am. Yeah? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. All right, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm verklempt. <laughs> Talk amongst yourself. Verklempt. Let's, let's translate that word for a little, the benefit of the broader being listener. Being choked up. Being all You're affected. Uh, <laughs> yes. I'm, you know, I think especially amongst social workers, we tend to like to downplay uh, our effect on people. And we, and we tend to downplay our leadership skills. And I, I think that happens. So we're with uh, Joni Cass and Angela Bradley. For the two of you, what's important as to the work you do as a professional involving people experiencing conflict? There's so much that's important. Um, for me, uh, what I like to do is help people feel that, that a sense of optimism, that, that even though they're in conflict, 
that they can they have or can develop ways of making this conflict work for them and that things can turn out all right for both of them and so what I feel is really important is to build capacity in people to be able to manage these things that feel like obstacles and and often end up being um, places of growth for them. I think whether I'm, it's in my capacity as an investigator, a mediator, I want to leave whatever the proceeding is um, confident that the parties felt respected, not just by me, but by the others in the room. And that's pretty much how I run things. <laughs> so... Um, Respect yeah. all around. Yes, I um, I like to walk the talk, and if I see bullying, that's that's one of my hot buttons. So, um, well, that's I respect from another perspective onto self. But what about self-respect? That people can be within the process of whatever it is you're trying to assist them. I actually put into my materials that I provide in advance that I may call a break because I feel that. It's my responsibility to not only manage the process, but to manage myself. And people ask, well, what kind of reasons would you call a break? If I'm being yelled at, which has happened, I will call a break. If, if I'm feeling emotional, which happened in that, that sexual assault case, um, I came close to calling a break a couple of times because even right on the spot I was starting to identify and think of what, uh, you know, the comparisons between the survivor, victim, however she wanted to be identified. <laughs> so yeah, I think that uh, for me it's setting out a structure in advance, whether it's an investigation or mediation, having that structure that allows me some leeway to jump out of the process and collect myself. I think it's important too to keep uh to keep really good boundaries uh, during the process so that um, you, everyone who's taking part in the process has to be dealt with with respect. And that includes you. And it's especially you, you as the mediator or facilitator or investigator or whatever because you are the one who's who's got responsibility for that process mm -hmm. Um, working ultimately that didn't come out the way I meant it to come out because that makes it sound I can look at your face Greg and see what you're thinking you think you can <laughs> I think I can <laughs> um, <laughs> that it, it's it's not that we have responsibility for the outcome it's that we have responsibility for the process and we mm -hmm. have a responsibility to to model what it's like to put up appropriate boundaries and say, no, that's not acceptable behavior towards me. If someone starts yelling at you or berating you or insulting you or, or whatever. Um, and it's it's important to to have that well in hand and have control over that situation. Well, I think, you know, it's a third party that we, when people engage us, they're seeking, there's a purpose why they're engaging us. Because for one, they're not finding the ability or capacity for themselves to do that on their own. Mm -hmm. So they're reaching out for some support, some assistance. And so when we as third parties create something, 
I think we're so integral as to the conditions that we provide or need to provide for the parties. In addition, we're part of that process. So we need to create conditions that are also where we're part of that. And we have to, because we are human beings too. And not enough of us acknowledge that, yeah, it's for them. We're creating these. You know, we talk about guidelines mm-hmm. where people come together and create these conditions for them to be able to have this difficult conversation. The ground rules. Yeah, these are ter- different terminology that mm-hmm. people create in order to help other people have those conversations. And usually the third party is like talking like it's for you people. What I try to do too is I say, okay, these are. You know, what What do you need in order to have these conversations? Ownership rests with the individual, not me to determine for them. And I also include myself as part of that. I have to be party to the, those conditions. So these are helpful for me to be within that space, too. I have to respect other people, too. I can't interrupt them. Do you include well, it's yourself? An, it's an opportunity, too. It's an opportunity to take what's happening in the room right at that time. There's no better uh, example of when people are, when the problem is that people aren't being respectful of each other. Um, If it's happening in the room, that's when you can draw attention to it and say, okay, let's take a look at what's happening in the room right now. You know, you're calling me an idiot. Um, How do you think that might make me feel to hear you calling me an idiot? How how do do you feel that that's helpful to the process that we're having right now? When, you know... So it's something you can use to further the goals of of the actual process that you're trying to, to do. So how do you prepare yourself to do the work you do? Anything that you organize yourself with? You mean besides the suit of armor? <laughs> yes, I think it might be a little difficult to go up and down those stairs with. A little, yeah, clunk, clunk, clunk. Especially emotionally, mentally, intellectually. Do you... I like to get to know as much as I can mm-hmm. about the parties um, mediation-wise. I, I, ideally, I'd love to have, if not a preliminary meeting with each during the intake process, uh, at least a phone call. I, I think it's it's in, it, I think it's really important to do some pre-work and mm-hmm. to just get some impressions or to get just to just do that groundwork. It's not always possible because of budgetary constraints or, or um, time constraints, but ideally that I, I see the work that you do before the prep, the yeah. prep is as important as what happens that day. So preparing yourselves, then the other part is how do you prepare the parties to get together, especially when they may not be able to stand the other person. They've only had negative interactions. Well, I, when I have my, my one, one-on-one interactions with people, if, if they're possible before having the interaction with everyone in the same room, um, again, it's a matter of lending my, my optimism and my sense that we can make this be a good thing, regardless of what the outcome is. And I prepare people by often saying I, I I feel really good about this we're gonna mm-hmm. I feel like we can really get somewhere good with this process and more often than not people will say to me 
really? Are you sure? Because it feels like it's just, oh, there's no point, and it's, mm-hmm. I feel like we can, uh, I'm stuck in the mud, and I'm like, no, no, I, I, I really feel good about this. I think that this can, that we can work through it. Well, when you say it that way, do you, do you feel people could have a sense that, hey, you may not be acknowledging me and my lived experience with this other person or persons? Usually by then I've built up a rapport with them, and I've heard them, and I've let them know that I've heard what their concerns are and how deeply they're affected. So it, it's also a matter of timing too, but you bring up a good point about that. It, it's about the timing, and it's about having built up the rapport first. And and them getting that you you really do care and you really do understand to whatever point you can what what they're feeling. Then you know concretely that it's not about you as the third person. It's about the people that are seeking your assistance and support. And it really, I can see on their faces that when you you say that, or I can hear it in their voices when you, and you have to mean it, of course, you can't just say it, but when someone else shows confidence that things can be worked through, mm-hmm. it gives people a whole new outlook because they've been mired in this feeling of helplessness and hopelessness that that um, bogs them down. I would say, though, um, one thing I do is, is really put... It processes almost like a, a centerpiece, like a thing in the middle of the table because I'm... I try not to, I, I totally agree with you in being very open and positive and it's just, I really rely on process as the way for everyone to focus on this, this thing, this process. Well, it takes us, takes it all off of everyone's shoulders and puts it onto the process. You know, this is what we're going to be going through and these are the things you'll be able to contribute and you know, we'll, I'll guide you through because I think probably the one thing that um, bothers me if I feel that I'm doing all the heavy lifting <laughs> because I'm, I'm also then concerned about um, what they're getting out of it or if they're just looking for someone to, to help lighten mm-hmm. their burden. I mean, we in order for us to help others to help themselves, people in some way have to contribute to their circumstance mm-hmm. and their situation. Right. So there has to be a, an element of active participation with that. Can't be passive, because right. then nothing. Then reliance comes on one other person or in you, and it's not about us as third parties. Right. So we need to provide that space and means for people to feel and that they can be part of it and feel part of it. When we talk about fatigue in relation to professional practice, what are we talking about? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yodala, but Why? what we're talking about is compassion fatigue. So um, it, it's been very, I'm, I'm very curious about um, about why and mm-hmm. why you you. I framed it this way. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious because I'm giving it a broader context. That's why. Okay. Um, so f- you fill in the blanks as to how you identify. Okay. So well, b- because you've you've um, framed it just as fatigue and not as a specific kind of fatigue, the compassion fatigue part of it. I I looked up fatigue in the dictionary Mm -hmm. and if you'll indulge me, I'll just kind of read out a little bit about it. 
Extreme tiredness, typically resulting from mental or physical exertion or illness. Um, tiredness, weariness, sleepiness, drowsiness, exhaustion, enervation, languor, lethargy. A reduction in the efficiency of a muscle or organ after prolonged activity. Weakness in materials, especially metal, caused by repeated variations of stress. So, a lessening in one's response to or enthusiasm for something, typically as a result of overexposure to it. Right. I think that last one mm-hmm. is a key one. Right. Yep. A lessening in one's response to or enthusiasm for something, typically as a result of overexposure to it. Yes. And the example they give in this dictionary app is uh, muse- museum fatigue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you go on a trip mm-hmm. and you go to a million museums, it's like museums aren't so aren't thrilling you so much. And um, and I did think of the example of when you fatigue a muscle, when you just use it and use it and use it and use it, and so it just gets fatigued and it gets non-functional. And that's what we mean by compassion fatigue, that when you're a helping professional, um, your use of your compassion, of your empathy, and especially your use of it in response to people telling you about very traumatic material, is forcing you to use that compassion muscle over and over and over again in ways that don't allow you to process it in, um, in a healthy way for yourself. So when you're listening to someone speak to you about having, let's say, as an, uh, um, in Angela's practice, after having been raped, you're not allowed to recoil in horror. You're not allowed to um, to cry to cry in or front of them. Yeah, well, <laughs> y- you know, sometimes you can let a tear or two to drop down your cheeks, but you can't, you know, sob in their lap. That would be contraindicated. Professional practice. <laughs> <laughs> that would be not, not the best helpful. medicine as a no. mediator or um, <laughs> And I, you know, in in my work. Um, of years and years of working in the emergency department, I've been involved in many, many very traumatic, very um, uh, just just horrific things that um, I've had a time when I was I had to strain my throat so hard to keep back tears that my throat hurt for four days. You have to respond in a way that's helpful to the person who you're looking after, who you're caring for, do who you're providing do all for. professionals, when they're dealing with people in conflict or crisis or trauma, do they all like, give off a sense of compassion? No. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Short answer. So <laughs> that's where I'm trying to get a broader. We can get into the narrowness of it as yeah. well, the focus. There are people who would listen and say, you know, touchy-feely stuff doesn't come across from, from me. I don't go to the feelings part. Yet, at the end point, after going through a process, they may be affected from it, from their experience with those people. You know, I'd like, if I could, I think as professionals, we, and, and Joan and I are both licensed professionals, we're trained in a certain way not to really address what we absorb, more or less. So, um, you know, uh, other lawyers like family, divorce lawyers are a big uh, immigration judges we've talked about. There are so, there are people in my profession 
who absorb so much emotion and hear so much about so much trauma, mm-hmm. but yet there, there's nothing like a compassion fatigue or vicarious trauma course in law school. No way. <laughs> you know, that's just... It, I will say with the Ontario Bar Association and, and the past president, there's been a lot of attention to mindfulness, the Mindful Lawyer series and so forth, and that, that is great. And I think that um, there may be a change in the legal profession where there's more attention to the fact that we're absorbing so much emotion and mm-hmm. you know, empathy. Yeah, caring, well, caring has a cost. Empathy has a cost. And in, instead of just... Dousing it with alcohol, or yeah. that's one of the side effects. I know we'll get to it. You know, when you don't identify, if you don't see your the symptoms, um, and you just self-medicate in various ways, that's one to of cope. Yes. that's your yeah. one of your could be one of the coping mechanisms. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, as as it gets more and more and more attention is paid to. Um, professions like lawyers who aren't really traditionally thought of as helping professionals. But when you think about it, when you're in trouble in some of the worst times of your life, you're relying on your lawyer to help you. And it's not even about showing compassion or showing empathy or, or being empathetic. It's about swimming in people's pain. It's about um, being surrounded by people's pain, anger, mm-hmm. hurt, trauma, people doing the worst, mm-hmm. most unconscionable, cruel things to each other, mm-hmm. that you cannot swim in that and not get wet. You can't be in that constantly without being affected by it, whether or not you, you're touchy-feely, warm and fuzzy, or whether you're a shark. You can't help but be affected by that. Yes, and each person in their own individual way. So how do we, how do the experience of those we, you, are seeking to assist and support sometimes become our own experiences? We become part of them. Well, part of it is neurological. We have um, in, in our neurons, in our neurological responses in our brain, we have what are called mirror neurons. And um, it's thought that this developed in, in human beings in order for us to be able to survive. It's, it's, Dar- it's very Darwinian. It's a, it's a survival mechanism to be able to understand each other's experiences because we're social animals. We depend on one another for everything, basically. And this is how we survive. So in our brains, when somebody is having an experience, we have an ability to kind of experience it with them. And that's the nature of empathy. And that's the nature of being a human being in a social, in a social situation. So when someone is relaying something to us, whether it's on the TV news or whether they're telling it to us in our office as a therapist or where it's happening out in open court where they're the, everything that's happened is, is being talked about and in the notes, we're all experiencing it in our own way along with the people that it's actually happened to. So that's how it becomes our own. It's hearing it, looking at it, visualizing over and over again. A big example is like 9-11. 
when people sat in front of their TVs and watched over and over and over again those planes flying into those buildings. And in my own experience, I was... I turned it off after a couple, a few times. I didn't need to see it anymore. I saw what happened. I didn't need to see it anymore. And then months later, um, I went to a training at work where they were teaching us how to how to respond to these terror situations. And for the first time I, in this training, I saw a, a film of people jumping from the windows. Mm. And that was I had heard about it, but it was the first time I'd actually seen it. And I have to tell you, I was so traumatized. And it's really hard when you're a helping professional, when you f- when y- you come face to face with this trauma from seeing that or hearing something, because your whole identity as being somehow separate and above responding that way is threatened. And I I was shaking. I felt like I had to leave the room. Um, I I somehow managed not to, but it was one of those those seminal moments, one of those times when it just came through to me so clearly what the cost of this kind of work is. And can be. So as a third person, a professional that's hired to assist others going through their struggles and challenges, crisis, trauma, you know, we're supposed to remain independent, not part of that. So we have to deal with what I believe are simultaneous opposites at the same time. We have to be connected to people, some way, empathic, to sort of feel, to help with some compassion, to help them journey to a better place, as they de- de- determine. At the same time, we can't take ownership of their experience. How do people navigate those two competing at the same, you know? Isn't that a struggle? It is. It is a struggle, but, you know, it, what's good is that it's been recognized as, as an occupational hazard among helping professionals, compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. And there are other things, you know, burnout. There are a lot of different um, words and terms that are used to address this kind of phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of research done on it. And there are, there are ways of building up resiliency so that you can do the work and keep caring because it's the caring part and doing the work well that creates the the problems within us. So if we can acknowledge it and destigmatize it and not feel like, oh, I can't have compassion fatigue because that means I'm not taking care of myself properly and people will think I'm not a good practitioner and people will think I'm not capable or competent. That's still a concern among people. They're like, they, it's, um, and that's why People who are prone, doctors are prone to to abuse substances. Lawyers are prone to abuse substances. Nurses, nurses are people. Yeah. P- helping professionals are self-medicating and trying to cope with the effect of the work on them. And they are they don't feel safe to reach out and get help. And I think that that's part of what we're doing when we do a workshop like the one we're doing is we're trying to to get people to recognize that this is a cost of the work. This is uh, an occupational hazard that can be dealt with and there are ways of building up your resiliency and being healthy and still doing the work. Well, to, re- to reformat the stigmatization of it. I mean, if people feel that, hey, they're going to be looked at differently 
lesser, lesser than as a professional. If you're so affected by the work you do, it may provide that people become less compassionate in doing the work they do. They put up greater walls, which is obviously going to affect not only the people we work with, it's going to affect you because maybe one of the things you truly value as a person and as a professional is being compassionate, empathic. Mm -hmm. So it's going to, you know, and we don't want people to resist. I think talking about these things, these sensitive things that have been left under the cover, to bring them, to bring light to it, is to say, hey, yes, let's have these difficult conversations and try to f find ways to address this. And we have our own Me Too moments, you know, where, where if someone's brave enough to say, oh, my God, I just had a week from H-E double hockey stick, <laughs> and... <laughs> I can't take it anymore, and I'm, you know, uh, if I see one more client, I'm just going to completely fall apart. And then someone else sees that they're they're speaking it, so then they feel the courage to speak it too. Yeah. And um, that's where we build community. That's where we build solidarity. That's when we come together and say, yes, I feel those things too. What right. do you do about it? Well, I, you know, this is what I do. And there are ways to handle it. And, and we need to come and together. And we really help people connect with this concept by saying you're not alone. Yes. And that's where people can mm -hmm. exhale in some way. Yeah. How do you segue people into another stage here? Well, we need to talk about what we can do. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and what can we do? What can we do to protect ourselves? What can we do to, to help navigate these waters? And um, when, when you're subjected to a lot of traumatic material and you're holding all that, the most natural thing to, to want to do is to debrief with, with other people. And talk with someone to else talk about the experience. About it to, yes, to lessen that burden of having that knowledge or having looked at what Share your material. feelings. Share your, your feelings about yeah. Share your horror. Share your fear. Share your, your disgust. Share your whatever you need to share. Mm. And we have um, both formal and informal ways of, do of doing that kind of disclosure. Um, formal ways are, you know, formal debrief sessions where people sit down with a, a professional or with a manager or with someone with someone who is trained to do these things um, and it might be once a month it might be once every five years that they decide to do something like this um, it's it's an organizational thing usually or it could be in it as part of your supervision with your with your supervisor um, the problems with um, that kind of debriefing is something may happen and you might need to debrief like right now, not in three weeks when your mm -hmm. debrief session right. is, is scheduled. Um, the other thing is that sometimes th these managers or HR people or whoever may not be trained properly to deal with this kind of material and don't and know to how have to that handle kind of it. The, the particular kind of conversation that would be best needed. Yes. In addition, there's a whole series of people who are self-employed who don't have that latitude. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right? And especially among our colleagues yeah. as mediators and other dispute resolution professionals, a lot of people out there in private practice who are just floating around and they're facing these really tough traumatic situations 
um, often dealing with children or dealing with people who've been catastrophically injured and the way the system treats them or in workplaces. And um, they're carrying all this stuff. And So how do you get them to move from the point of the experience to a point of trying to work to assist and support themselves? Well, there... Personally, I believe there needs to be a community. There needs to be some sort of peer consultation, peer um, debriefing, peer um, supervision, if you want to call it. I don't like to call it peer supervision. I prefer peer consultation, where um, professionals get together and they sit down in a structured setting with someone who can facilitate that in in a trained way. Mm-hmm. And um, and allow people to debrief in a way that doesn't um, slime <laughs> their colleagues. It's a, it's a word that we that we've developed in the in the compassion fatigue vicarious trauma world um, that that really refers to taking that material and putting it on people without really um, getting their consent or their their sure. permission. Checking in with them first. You know, are they in the space where they can absorb what you've just experienced? Or, or, or the, you know, so it's, I, I was just thinking as you were talking, like there's an attraction, I think it's a human attraction to share the drama in our lives. And maybe it's influenced by, you know, our media culture, mm-hmm. and, and or maybe it's just human nature. But there's, there's drama and then there's, I mean, there's over-dramatizing things and, and sliming people, and you're just, you're spreading the woe in a way, <laughs> you know, like yeah, the saying, misery loves co- company. Yeah. Not, not really so. I mean, you're just... You're, you're trying to reframe it from this hopeless, helpless self-perspective that you're not alone. There are possibilities and options for you to address it and work this through to become... But it needs to be done in a way that you as we say, don't slime everyone else because um, I think it's a responsibility on the on the dispute resolution professional, whatever background you have coming to this area, to, to be responsible and, you know, build your resiliency without dragging everyone else into the drama and the trauma of it all because um, I think that just... It just Expounds it just exacerbates the situation that you're dealing with. At the same time, you know, we we do live in this dramatic world that we've put ourselves in by doing the kind of work we do, and we do need to debrief with each other, and we do need to informally debrief with each other. And a lot of us have found our people that we can debrief with, and mm-hmm. a lot of times we kind of lose our our self awareness about how we debrief with each other and people get in a habit of just blah all (laughs) over the other person because that's how they've been with each other and they've always been able to just let it all out and what we I think we need to become more mindful of and more aware of the other person as a person with their own triggers Mm -hmm. their own vulnerabilities you know, there might be a time when so- you have a traumatic thing that you just heard about that has to do with children. And for you, that may not be a particular trigger. But for the person you're talking to, they may have an experience where 
hearing stuff about cruelty to children is is even more horrible than uh, just the general population and we I think if we want to really take care of each other we we need to be mindful of that and it's not just about self-care it's about caring for each other um, and and one point I really want to get across is that there's a big movement towards self-care in this area and I th- I really think it's important that we recognize that self-care is important and it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Because then we can just get off the hook and organizations get off the hook by saying, oh, you need to take care of yourself, do some yoga, get a pedicure, and then you're good. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't happen so easily. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these experiences and be affected by them. So what can we suggest for people who are experiencing challenges in order to work through Go <laughs> um, Well, you you can start reading about things like like compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, and low impact debriefing. And there's lots of reading out there. And start talking to people about it. Mm-hmm. And start building up your own kind of boundaries. When someone starts to slime you and you feel uncomfortable about what they're saying to you, you can say, you know what? I do want to kind of listen to what you're saying, but could you just not tell me the gory details? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then that person can talk to you, but not traumatize you at the same time. Um, The other thing you can do is just be aware of um, workshops and things that you can go to and practice these skills. Yeah, so quickly put a plug in for that. Okay. Yeah. Adrio, um, September 13th. Joan and I are doing a workshop, and I think that's a great opportunity to practice how to, to self-assess. First of all, there will be a self-assessment exercise, but also to practice how to, to do low-impact debriefing. And other resiliency skills as well. There's a whole lot there that you can do to help yourselves and each other. I think the first thing, it starts with raising these to yes. the conscious level. Get mm-hmm. people to start talking. Agitate for the stuff that we keep hidden and won't talk about. Thank you each for coming tonight. Thank you Thank so you. much for having Great us. Great to be here. And I hope you can deal with your identity crisis. Uh. I think <laughs> the elf has been left on the shelf. All right. You've been listening to Mediation Station on CHHA, 1610 AM.